Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic episode 180. Today we're talking with UX designer Jonathan Courtney. Uh, before we get into today's episode, I want to give thanks to our sponsor, Liquid Web. And while Liquid Web is best been known as a managed hosting company with tons of options, recently they've designed a managed WordPress offering that's perfect for mission critical sites. So if you're uh, John, running one of the. John. Yeah. John. Gonna have to stop and redo it because it's um, episode um, 181, not 180. Are you serious? Oh my god! Okay, all right, that's redo it. Oh my god, that's what you get. Okay, you're right. (laughs) Hold on, I'll I'll clip this out. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 181. Today we're talking with UX designer, Jonathan Courtney. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give thanks to our sponsor, Liquid Web. While Liquid Web is best been known as a managed hosting company with tons of options, recently they've designed a managed WordPress offering that's perfect for mission-critical sites. If you're running a site that absolutely has to Uh, succeed and you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptime, and incredible support, Liquid Web is the hosting partner that you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer also has iThemes Sync already integrated into their management portal. This means that you can update several sites with a single touch. So if you sign up today using the discount code WPTONIC33, you'll get a 33% discount for the next six months. So head on over to liquidweb.com slash WordPress to get started and use that code WPTONIC33. With that, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Jonathan Courtney. Uh, Your firm uh, has worked with global brands like eBay, the United Nations, and Lufthansa. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, about your company and what they do. All right. Hey, guys. Um, so, yeah, AJ and Smart, I founded it uh, with a, my co-founder five and a half years ago. And, yeah, basically we started out as a straight-up UX design agency, kind of avoiding everything branding-related, avoiding everything sort of advertising-related, just going straight into uh, UX and product work. And yeah, we basically help companies, like you mentioned already, a couple, um, these larger firms and also, um, let's say, also smaller companies uh, build products, um, improve their products, or even help them figure out what types of products they should make in the first place. And yeah, we're based in Berlin here, but our clients are all over the world. Excellent. I also want to introduce my co-host, Jonathan Denwood. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a maintenance small job support company. We're your resource for anything around WordPress, your trusted partner, aren't we, John? 
Absolutely. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I provide pro- uh, custom WordPress development and local SEO for blue collar industries. One thing I want to ask you, uh, Jonathan, um, when it comes to UX, um, in in the last 10 years, this has kind of become its own design discipline in itself. Uh, for people who don't know what, what user experience is all about, can you just kind of break it down? For- yeah, I mean, it's actually pretty difficult to break down at this point because it's such a catch-all term for almost everything design-related these days. Um, but when we started out, I mean, I think you can, you can um, kind of lock it down to being any sort of... Um, interaction or experience that the user has with some sort of a digital product if you want to make it just kind of a bit more specific so it can be it can encompass usability it can be the actual user interface it can be the flow of what the user is actually doing but essentially i mean a ux designer their job is to make the uh user um basically give the user the easiest and most pleasant time possible using the product uh, using a product from a company and help them get the jobs to be done done as fast as possible as well. But like I said, uh, the term UX, I mean, when we started out, it was pretty unknown what that really even meant. And it was very, very specifically almost uh, around usability, actually. It was very usability focused, whereas now it can be anything related to the product and digital product design process. It's a long answer, but it's pretty broad. <laughs> Excellent answer. Uh, and, and one thing I want to focus on there when you said it's, it's anything related, related to the product design process. Um, you guys do design sprints. Uh, is, is that uh, a lot of, of design thinking? And, and if so, like how, how has design thinking uh, changed UX in the last few years? Yeah, that's really interesting. The design thinking... Um, kind of has become huge now, and especially in the larger companies, they're starting to talk about design thinking a lot more, even though it's been around for like 20, 25 years. Um, it's, so the design sprint itself does have a lot of elements of design thinking in it, but you can think of it more as an applied design thinking. It's actually taking the principles of design thinking and uh, repackaging it in a way that can be applied to the product design process. So design thinking in general can be looked at as a set of principles. So you can, for example, do a design thinking workshop and come out of it feeling really great, feeling understanding that creativity can be processized, but not necessarily be able to adapt that to your business or adapt that to your UX process, where the design sprint pretty much is a plug-in-and-play um, system for starting with nothing and coming out with a product which includes everything from UX, UI, uh, business um, goal management, every possible thing. And design thinking is definitely, there's, there's just lots of different parts of the design thinking process within the design sprint process. But design thinking is very, very interesting. It's like, a, it's being also used as a generic term for anything innovation related. So when people talk about um, innovation, they, they kind of default to, oh, design thinking. Um, but it's often uh, being used in a uh, way too generic way. And it, people also think that if a company does design thinking uh, courses, that they're all automatically going to be innovative. The problem is that it's quite hard to implement the things you actually learn there. No, that's, that's perfect. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is at AJ 
and smart, one thing that you guys discovered is that your design process had some bloat in it. Yeah. And your design process, the way it was before you integrated design sprints, was very similar to what most designers do. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, like how most people design and, and how you guys are designing now and what you discovered? Yeah. Um, so like, like you said, and just to be super clear, we were doing what everybody else was doing um, until about maybe four years ago. I mean, we were doing a, we were selling like a research phase, which could go from anything to two weeks to like three months. We were building personas. We were doing market research. We were just creating a lot of documentation as sort of a foundation before we would build the product. So we'd have, you know, we'd really have everything being backed up before we actually made any move. Then we would go to the product phase where we would build wireframes. We would do mood boards. We would kind of break everything up in this weirdly linear, linearly way, um, which is kind of kind of against the whole agile process as well. And so you would have like one step, then a break, then another step, then a break, then another step. And a lot of context was lost. So a client would come to us and they would say, hey, we want to get this new product out on the market. And we would say, yeah, great. So um, we'll work on it for like three to six months. And then you can maybe think about thinking about developing it. Um, and this is very much how most design agencies are still working right now. And this is very much how a lot of companies still work right now. It's, it's a very... Um, drawn out process and we kind of thought you had to do it like that and because we were getting paid to do it anyway we were like yeah okay this is probably the way you're supposed to do it but once a lot of uh, companies once our prices started getting too high but very interesting companies started coming to us with not very big budgets we had to give them we were starting to like make smaller packages for them and these smaller packages we had to charge a lot less for because they just didn't have the budget. So we started cutting bits and pieces out of the design process that we thought might be okay to cut out. But we obviously made it clear to them, okay, you know, it's actually not a good idea to do this without the research and whatever. But the crazy thing is we cut all that stuff out. We cut potentially months worth of work out of, out of the packages. And the weird thing is that the products actually started getting better the clients were way happier. We were way happier with the work and everything was just moving, moving much more smoothly. So we started to just realize maybe this process we were just kind of going along with because our clients liked that process. Maybe it's actually 80% waste. Um, and now a few years later, um, doing these smaller packages and now implementing the design sprint pro process, which is just a one week process into the company where after seeing there's a crazy amount of wasted money and wasted time in the standard design process. It's, it's really insane. And design thinking has a lot to answer for that, by the way, because people who literally take the design thinking lessons to heart will say, yeah, well, we need to do um, this much research so we really understand the users. But even when you really, really understand the users, it doesn't mean that the product is going to work or actually connect with anybody. So we just try to get that out there as fast as possible now. So yeah, I mean, we've cut down our pro. We like what we're doing in with in one week with the client now is something that we used to do over the space of six months, uh, only three years ago, which is completely crazy to me. That's very interesting that, that you developed your design sprints out of necessity, and you thought it would have a negative effect on the design process that you guys did, but it actually had a positive impact on it just all the way around. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, here's a question. When it comes to, you know, user research and designing these personas, why, why do you, in your opinion, do you believe that the, these things fail where in a design sprint, um, the way that you are, are getting to a prototype now, why do you think that is successful where um, going through user research and personas and all that sort of thing uh, ended up kind of being not necessary? Yeah, really excellent question. Um, I think that uh, when we used to build personas, it was actually quite nice. It was very relaxing. It, we had so much time to build up these personas and imagine these people who would be using these products. And it would take so long before the first of these people would actually get to use the product that we would, it would take us like maybe six months before the first person's actually holding it and trying it out. Now, maybe they would have tried wireframes. Maybe they would have tried paper prototypes but those never really gave us very good feedback. With the design sprint, within four days, the user is already holding a very high fidelity version of what this product could be, and we're getting immediate tangible feedback that we can act on immediately. So instead of, I mean, it's kind of, a, it's obviously the, the approach is more of a aggressive approach. The design sprint approach, you're kind of shoot, like it's a shotgun approach. You're trying a lot of different things, you're assuming already up front that you're going to be wrong on a lot of ways, but you want to see which direction actually is right. And to find the direction in the first place, just getting tangible re uh, results from users within the first four days is crazy. And this is something that we used to hold off for so long. So I think that for us, just seeing real people using what actually is being set up as the real product or what the real product could be gives us 100 times more valuable information than building personas and then building the product based on them and then testing it ever gave us. So it's just this, it's actually weirdly enough more like it's just more a common sense approach. It's nothing special. It just, it's just common sense. So would you say that, that um, you know, no matter how hard we try to understand the users uh, through research, maybe it's not quite the same or it's not the same as having like real people in the room and getting actual feedback. We're trying to get into their head, but it's not the same as just having them right there and, and getting the actual real feedback. Yeah. I mean, there's this, it's, it's exactly right. And it's, it's the thing that you hear a lot of people saying, or like, for example, Jason Fried and their company planning is guessing. It doesn't matter what you think the users are going to do with your product just because you deeply know them. Um, it's probably not going to happen once you actually show it to them. You, you always, like, even on the projects where we did a lot of studies, we, we even, like, did a lot, like, long-term observations and diaries and all that kind of crap that people do. In the end, when they held the product, we were like, oh, God damn it. The problem is, right, even though we then knew that they didn't really fit with the product, we had done so much research that we kind of started tricking ourselves into believing Ah, yeah. Well, they, you know, they just don't get it. This is like the they, this this tester just didn't get it. Let's just get different testers. So I think the longer you're working on a project and the longer you're kind of doing the research, the more you're also likely to trick yourself because you're kind of after getting really caught up in the product as well. Here we're working on something for three days. If the users don't like it, scrap it. You know, take the bits that actually make sense. Go again. There's no kind of um, deep attachment you get to the products. I think that's actually very important as well. 
Yeah, definitely great. Um, so let's say I come to you. I'm, I'm a company. I've got a budget and, and I have this vague idea. I kind of have this idea of like a goal of what I want my product to, to accomplish. Uh, you know, kind of walk me through how each day of the, the design sprint goes. Okay, so actually most of the time the clients who come to us have a very vague idea. It's more like um, we, we kind of ask them to come to us with something that's more like we want to be, we want to get into this demographic. So we have a product already and we want to get into uh, this age group or we have these assets, like we have all these assets, what sort of a product could we make out of these assets that would actually create revenue? Or even we have a product, can we create another revenue stream out of it? And then our favorite is just, we are a company and we feel like we're not very relevant at the moment. What sort of a product could get us into some sort of a market? So they would come into our office. We, have the, we ask that the client is uh, here for two days straight. So we have like all the decision makers on the product team sitting in our office for two days straight, which is actually very strange for them, uh, at least when we're, when we're telling them this the first time. And this is just to avoid any misalignment that can happen because we have no time for feedback loops. We have to do everything together. So the first two days are about really defining what the actual challenges are, what the actual scope of the project is, really nailing down what the most important things to solve would be. Like what is the like 80% more important than everything else? This is what we'll solve this week. And the, the Monday, the second half of the Monday is just producing as many solutions as possible within the time so a quantity over quality approach and the clients are also producing solutions we're all on the same level in this so we we obviously have a lot more experience so a lot of our concepts might be a bit more fleshed out but the clients often have very very good solutions already within their head that they just weren't able to get out before doing this process um, the tuesday they're just we're pulling together all of the concepts and trying to pull out the best parts and kind of aligning those best parts with the goal we're trying to reach. And we kind of decide then on the Tuesday exactly what to prototype. So we're literally going with the client, building a storyboard um, slide by slide, what exactly is going to be in this uh, test on Thursday? What screens do we need? What are the most important things? Is this really going to solve the problem we're trying to solve? Wednesday is the client can go home and relax after a very tiring two days while we build a prototype which is actually happening in the background right now. Um, and we're in one day going from those sketches on the wall to a very high fidelity prototype that's interactive. And then the Thursday from uh, 10 a.m. to 5.30, we're doing um, either in-house user tests here at the company or remote user tests because a lot of our clients are not in Germany. And um, yeah, the client then watches those user tests on a live stream all day, but they don't even need to because we're pulling together what are the actionable steps based on those tests. So they don't need to watch. I mean, a lot of companies will like record the eight hours of tests and then give it to the client and say, here, you know, here's like a giant document and eight hours of tests, watch it. But we immediately say, here's exactly what this means in the context of the product. Here's what we do next. And here's where, what you should do next with this product. Here's what worked, here's what didn't work. And here's where the users are going to find it interesting. And here's what we should scrap, even though you think it's cool. So at the end of the week, at the end of one week, they already have something that they're able to, you know, show internally in the company and they're very excited about it. Um, often we do two weeks back to back. And in the second week, we can already iterate and polish it so much that it very, very often goes straight to development after two weeks, which is completely crazy 
from what they're used to doing as well. So basically, you can come to us on a Monday, walk out on a Thursday holding a high fidelity, potentially your product, uh, as a, just as a high fidelity prototype. That's incredible. That, that, that's just amazing. Um, you know, and, and definitely when it comes to, you know, deciding like what goes in the storyboards, everybody just kind of comes up with kind of at the beginning, what I'm getting out of this is that at the beginning of the week, everybody's doing a brain dump on Tuesday. You're kind of putting together the storyboards. Um, when it comes to making a decision of, of what goes into, uh, each storyboard, each frame of, of the app or, um, the site, how do those decisions get made? Uh, and, and what happens if there's two ideas that, that um, everybody is kind of equally uh, uh, supporting? Okay, perfect question, because exactly what's happening right now outside is an example of that. Uh, the client, uh, so actually, one important thing is that on the Monday, we choose a decider, and this decider is from the client side, and this is the person who needs to make difficult decisions once we come up against them but they're also given extra decider votes. And this decider is often the person who wants to take the responsibility for the product. Yesterday, the client chose two uh, concepts which were quite different from each other. But in that case, you have two choices. You can either build two prototypes in one week, which are a little bit less detailed and don't have such a deep story you can't click through all the way to the end or whatever. Or you can do one prototype which combines the best of both. And that's what we're doing this week because... One of the concepts was very different from the other, but they were combinable. There was something we were able to put on the home screen of one. There was a timeline in the other one that goes into a separate part of it. And you build both of them together. And how this actually gets... So from the two concepts, how, the, how it goes from... I'm just trying to see if there's some stuff behind me. Here we go. So, <laughs> so here's an example of one of the concepts. Um, so that's two different concepts which are getting put together, actually. And from these, we then do an exercise where we basically um, have everybody in the room decide um, which eight steps need to happen in this product for it to really satisfy the goal. So what does the user have to do in this product for us to really see if this is a, is a valid product or what parts of it are valid? And from those eight steps that everyone does together, um, this is actually, if you go to sprintstories.com, it's the GV blog. Uh, we wrote an article about how to do that because it's it's not something from the book, but it's like a pre-storyboard exercise. So everybody puts their steps that they want actually to go into it, and we uh, combine all the similar steps, put it in one storyboard, and then we basically know every screen. So this is the screen where the user has to do this. This is the screen where the user has to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And then we pull the screens from the main concepts and attach it to the storyboard and then often we have to redraw it because essentially we're making a Frankenstein product there. I think awesome. I hope it's a bit abstract to explain, I think, without showing it, but um, hopefully that kind of answers it. No, no, I think I, yeah, I, I think I totally get it. Um, so, so then uh, Wednesday, you, you basically throw all that in, in vision, you get a high fidelity uh, prototype going. And then on uh, Thursday, uh, you're you're doing the testing. So so uh, you know what does that look like, and how do you know if you have a home run, or um, you know how do you know that you've got a successful product here? Okay, so I mean obviously until it's really on the market, until they can really measure it in terms of revenue and in terms of engagement, 
you can't we can't say 100% this is the product go for it this is going to win um, but very very often and and the most of the time we're able to say the tendency here is that this is something you should try or the tendency here is that this is something you really should not try and this is something when we say not try we would say don't try this but actually about 10% of this product is interesting for everybody scrap 90% of it and make a product that focuses just on this one thing so the the at the end of the day um the recommendations to the client are always very very clear um and very very often they're able to let's say remove the pointless parts or add the things that were missing uh within their own product teams and really go to market and then see what really actually works i mean the reason we do everything so fast is because we know even if we all think it's great even if the user testing goes really great when it gets on the market it still might not make money for the client or it still might not be the product that they actually needed to do the thing they actually wanted it to do so they need to get it out there fast without investing crazy amounts of money into it at the very start and that's like the standard proclamation of the lean startup uh thing and i think what's what's quite cool is that the design sprint is almost like a step by step how to of um how to implement uh, the lean startup thing on a product level so when you get the product like all the when you get the product on the market then you've either got validation that you guys made the right choices or you can iterate from there absolutely I, absolutely yes and i think um and that's that's what's very important to us that our clients are then able to see holy crap not like it's on the market now it's let's say it's either doing well or it's not doing well let's iterate but also one that they, they um start to realize is that because their team is now doing a project which they almost never get to do like in in these companies these projects go on forever and ever and ever and ever and there's no end points the design sprint allows them to have these end points they get to celebrate everyone gets to kind of renew this kind of fatigue you build up when you're working on a product goes away and even if it let's say doesn't work and let's say they they realize okay look um the only way to make this work would be such a high acquisition cost there's no point let's try a different product they now have a system for being able to pump products out there unbelievably fast and without such a big commitment that they had to do before this how much planning goes into a product in some of these older larger companies who have all the money by the way they they spend like 2 million 3 million dollars just planning the product instead of just spending like 100,000 making the product and getting it out there and the crazy thing is they're spending the millions on making sure it doesn't fail or like building all these things that are like let's say saves their asses in case it fails um but yeah just so that nobody's responsible but the design sprint sort of kind of cuts through that and allows you to really get something very very quickly get it out there see if it works see if it didn't then iterate it's it's really it's really interesting and really crazy to me that companies are still doing these very very long processes which their own designers and their own product people hate doing deep down after 6 months on a project doesn't matter how exciting it is talk to the people working on it there there's a passive aggressive tension in every product team in every company i go to because you know there's just this sort of tension that builds up after a while and this is something you can avoid with design sprint i know i answered like 10 different questions you didn't ask me there 
No, that's perfect, though. Uh, we're going to go to our midpoint break, and then after that, I'm going to pass the mic over to Jonathan Denwood. So we're going to be talking more after the break with Jonathan Courtney of AJN Smart. See you after the break. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from the break and we're talking more with UX designer extraordinaire, Jonathan Courtney. And now I want to pass the mic over to Jonathan Denwood. Oh, thanks, John. Um, Jonathan, it's been a fascinating interview so far. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been amazing. Um, what seems to be is that UX design um, has become really important as um, in um, app, apps on smartphones, SaaS products um, um, distributed through the web. That UX design has become a differentializer. Um, you know, um, it used to be just functionality you know the more functionality you had in a product or it was a cheaper price but over the past few years actual usability the the ability to use uh, a product efficiently in its design has become a differentializer would you agree with that statement and do you think that will continue i definitely agree with it um but i think at this point in 2017 for companies who actually care about having a good product, a table stakes right now. Every company has to have a, a very usable, easy to use, and and let's say very nicely put together product and with, with good UX. I think I think that five years ago when I started, or actually Jesus, I don't even know. It's like seven years ago at this point. Um, we had to convince companies that this was important. Now there's no need to convince anymore. Everyone understands that if you even want to get to an even playing field, you have to have good UX. And then on top of that, you build the other values. So I think it's almost becoming a commodity at this point, in my opinion, to say you need to have good UX. That has to happen no matter what. So the products in where the actual value is right now for it's actually to become creative problem solvers, both for the product and for the business. So yes, I agree with it, but there's a few caveats. <laughs> no, obviously, um, oh, the obvious question uh, and, uh, and the obvious answer. The obvious question is why are there so many really appalling web interfaces and app interfaces? Obviously, the answer to that is they didn't hire your company to, to, to help them. Um, but to be serious, um, why do you think is it um, linked to? the previous questions you went through with John is that it's the actual process that delivered those bad interfaces that is one of the major problems. Absolutely. I think that um, there are a lot of companies with amazing designers. I mean, companies don't need to call us to, to solve their UX problems. They can do it themselves 
with a handful of really with, with a handful of even just good designers it's about the processes so sometimes i mean i've, I've worked within companies where it didn't matter how my worked with was the processes within the company were so bad and so toxic that the products that went out were still total crap so i think that you have a lot of companies who maybe have the they kind of talk about that they they take UX seriously and they talk about that they take design seriously but their processes don't reflect it but also there's another thing some products don't really need to have a good uh, uh, user experience to be honest i mean if you look at craigslist or if you look at something like there are a lot of products which just look like crap are difficult to use but people are willing to use them because it actually gets the job done and it's still better than what other options they have i use a couple of products that just really I don't know. Like I would say, for example, Slack is not easy to use, and it doesn't really solve all of our team's problems. But it solves them better than everything else, so we're fine with it. I think Dropbox is also a complete mess when it comes to setting up everyone's computer the first time and all of this. But in the end, it's fine, and we're using it, and it's it still does the trick. Spotify is another one, right? Spotify has this nightmare interface with about breaking every rule of navigation imaginable. But I personally don't really care because it actually does a great job of curating the music I like. So I think user experience can be viewed on multiple different levels, and it doesn't always have to be a good usable product. Oh, I think that's fantastic insight. Um, another thing I was going to ask you about um, is when it comes to interfaces, is that um, we, we do a regular panel show, and one of our regular panelists did a great presentation at a conference both me and John attended. And it was about um, how metaphor and previous experience affects people's ability to use interfaces and UX design. And um, it was from our panelist, Sally. And she was pointing out, you know, most people, um, when computers were first designed, they, they decided when it had a, a, a visual um, um, design to it rather than just a command line, is they chose the desktop metaphor. And now you've got Microsoft. And how it applies to WordPress, that you know, a lot of users expect WordPress to work like Microsoft Word when it comes to the editor and that. How does that affect UX design? people's previous experiences with other interfaces and their expectations? I think the, the mo on a day-to-day -day level, it's very important to understand the patterns of a, of a platform. So, for example, iOS and Android have their own design patterns that if you design it like completely amazing, cool UI, if it doesn't really conform to the patterns that people are used to, it's likely people are going to get frustrated. So for us, for a UX designer, no matter what you're designing for, or what new product you're designing, you have to think, what are these people used to now? So that you don't, and even if you do something completely crazy and new, it's always good in your mind to know what are they going to be expecting here, even if we do something unexpected. So I think it's very, very important, the context of whatever platform you're designing for and, and just understand what people might think it should do when you're designing things. And I think that the desktop and then there's the skeuomorphic design where there was like leather on the background and all these crazy things on iOS. I think it's just like 
now we've kind of calmed down. There was like the flat design thing. There was all these design trends. And now I think we're in this very nice calm phase where we just kind of agreed that most stuff can be kind of flat when interact with maybe are not flat. Just a really simple, actually everything's starting to look like uh, Google material design for the last two years. And I'm pretty fine with that. They've kind of um, defined some sort of a standard, which even Apple have decided to follow and pretty much every company has decided to follow. Slightly raised cards with a shadow underneath, which went very out of fashion like three years ago. And now, yeah, I mean, pretty much something like that has to be taken into account when you're building a new product. People expect to see something like that, and it's, it's, it's also totally fine. I don't really worry about it. It's good to have the context. Um, so that's great. Um, when it, you know, obviously, um, a lot of our audience are designers, um, developers, consultants, digital marketers. It's a very broad audience we've got, Jonathan, um, for the show. Um, but they they have have a, a linkage that they tend to use WordPress on a regular basis, and there's a lot of talk. Um, I don't know if you've got any experience with WordPress and you use it regularly, but um, there's been kind of criticism of the kind of um, that the interface is a bit stale and a bit old fashioned in look. Um, but you know, now you've got enormous user user base that have utilized that kind of design for quite a while. So how, how do you deal with um, when you have a client that wants to refresh something, um, but they don't like, they don't want to throw the child out with the kitchen, with, with the um, bathroom <laughs> water, if you understand the metaphor. I, I totally know the problem. It happens every time any company redesigns anything. Um, everyone freaks out. Just look how often people freak out when like, Recently, we had Instagram changing their navigation on the bottom from uh, black to white and changing their icons. It was a giant uproar about how terrible it was. So a few months later, zero people are talking about that now. I think that the company, if they really want to refresh something, first of all, they should be refreshing it for a good reason. And in, in the Instagram case, it was to make the content stand out a little bit more and have less contrast in the actual interface. I think if there's a real reason to refresh it as opposed to just the refreshing for the sake of refreshing and looking better just some take the shit for a while maybe even take the some of the, the the comments will also be true like for example when ios had the uh hel ridiculously thin helvetica font on the home screen that nobody could read i think you you just have to be ready to take a lot of shit that maybe 80% of it will die down very quickly and then see what the 20% of the actual problems that are out, um, laying around are um, and then actually solve them. But, right, I think if you're going to do a major refresh, unless you want to do it iteratively, like bit by bit, it's risky when you want to do a major refresh and especially for something that millions of people are using, like Instagram, like Facebook, like the, the, the WordPress uh, system, it's very difficult even for us to help a client avoid the, the backlash they're going to get. Um, I mean, Spotify changed the tone of the green on their logo and the designer, Tobias von Schneider, had like weeks and weeks of like 
endless assholes just getting really pissed off with him. Um, it's the world we live in. You just have to take it. <laughs> There's no way around it. You, you can do it iteratively or you can, what's actually works quite well is to do a, basically allow people to see the new version and use it and go back to the old version if they want. Um, that's what Medium is doing right now. Um, I'm using the new Medium uh, dashboard, which I find fine. But um, yeah, there's a couple of ways to do it. That That's the safest way. Build a whole different look and feel and let people try it while you kind of gather feedback. Oh, that's great. Um, another question, um, I call it physicality. I don't actually even know it's in the dictionary. I have a habit of creating my own words. Um, but I call it physicality. And what I mean by that, Jonathan, is um, the debate about like touch screens. You know, um, obviously, um, people utilize a smartphone in a certain way. And that way is dominated by the physicality of the device. And then you got tablets. And then the idea that um, because you use the, a smartphone a certain way, that you should re replicate that on a laptop or on a desktop screen, i.e. it should have a touch screen. And, um, you know, certain piece, certain manufacturers went down a unified road, but it was interesting to me that Apple decided um, and consistently not to go down that road. Um, do you think when it comes to UX design, there is definitely a consideration and a boundary around the actual physicality of the device that you're working with? Um, I think that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're designing something for a phone, you have so many, or if you're designing something for just uh, any mobile device, you have completely different considerations for when you're looking at something like a desktop device, even even the amount of distance, like even where you're placing the icons, whether they're on the bottom of the screen or the top of the screen is important. Whereas on a desktop, you can do crazy things like having nested files you can have like nested navigation you can have loads of crazy stuff going on there i don't know how it necessarily relates to the touch screen revolution or whatever microsoft is trying to do um i think that at least in popular desktop products we're kind of not really thinking too hard about whether people are going to be touching the desktop screen or not um it's it's very focused on there's a, there's a pretty, in, in the UX world right now, um, at least I'm speaking for the majority of um, people, there's a hard cut between what you're seeing on the desktop, um, especially for a web app, especially for something like WordPress, and what you're seeing on a mobile device, because the context is also different. On WordPress, for example, at least the way I'm using it, I'm not writing um, uh, long-form articles uh, or long-form blog posts with rich media on the mobile version, I'm actually using it often for just checking the analytics or answering comments. Whereas on the um, desktop version, I can completely put my entire site uh, together, make new templates, do all the SEO stuff and go crazy. It's just a different context when I'm sitting down uh, at my laptop and having more time and, uh, to think and more time to, uh, to give to it. Whereas on a mobile device, it's often a completely different context. It doesn't really answer the Apple not going in that direction question. Um, but I think that right now there is a hard cut for designers. We're not all thinking about um, touchscreen desktop devices. I think actually right now, not a lot of people are thinking about that at all. 
Oh, the reason I think that was a great answer. Thanks, Jonathan. The reason I ask it is um, it applies to web de development design. Um, both me and John have been in industry for a while, but we're totally invested in WordPress. Um, but um, there, there, there seems to be a concept that you can totally replicate on a small screen and then replicate it on a tablet and then on a desktop and have a similar interface um and have and i don't actually believe that uh, i think they're they're that it's a it's balance both worlds it's basically the worst of both worlds you're looking for the lowest common denominator between the two you're looking to find an okay version that will work on both devices and that's kind of a little bit what windows 8 especially when it first came out, was it was like not great on mobile devices and not great on desktop devices. And um, yeah, I just don't like this compromise. All right. Thank, thanks for saying that. I might be slightly right. I'm not sure. Um, John, um, I'm going to throw it back over to you, John, with a couple of finishing questions and then, and then we wrap it up. Shall we, John? Um, sure. Let's start the cipher. So um, I wanted to ask you, your colleague, Tim, wrote a very interesting article uh, uh, said, are we hitting peak design? And this was <laughs> addressing <laughs> the, the supposed maturity of design templates. And, uh, you know, speak a little bit to that, to uh, are we going to hit a, a place where templated design puts us out of a job? So I talked earlier about the commoditization of UX design where it reaches a point where pretty much all of the general standard usability problems um, are kind of solved and, and being just repeated over and over again. I think that, so on the one hand, if your job is just making uh, visuals for people that are easy to use and that's what you're doing, yes, um, your job is at risk, absolutely, totally. Um, but if you're, because I mean, honestly, we even are interested. We even use things like Squarespace for ourselves, or now we're using WordPress, and we're fine to use templates. You know, for our own marketing materials, I don't give a crap to be honest. If your job is a UX designer, and, and that's in that case, which is like someone whose sole job is to solve problems and make decisions, then you're pretty safe for a while until the AIs get smart enough to do all that for you as well. So I think that if you're, um, if you're, th there, there is going to be a point, and there already is right now a point where pretty much anybody can pull out a template and put together a very nice looking app, um, but that doesn't really have any value. The value is like, what's, what is the product and what is it actually doing and how is it helping people? Um, that That's where the value is being created. So I, I think like, it depends on what your it depends on what your career path is in that case. There's definitely I mean every single year people freak out about a new way that design is being uh, commoditized. I have no problem with templates existing. Um, I think you should embrace it. Actually, embrace the fact that it's making your job easier, and you can focus on the bigger things like helping solve problems for your clients. No, I think that's beautiful. Um, you know, your motto is uh, solve problems and then decorate. And that kind of speaks to what you were just saying is, you know, if, if, the, 
if the job is just to make things pretty, then your job is probably at risk. But if your job is to solve problems, then we're going to be employed for a long time because there is the mobile revolution is really not that old. It's less than 10 years old. And there's going to be a pr proliferation of many more devices that we haven't even imagined yet. So uh, what do you think you know, about the future of design when it comes to um, you know, the, the future of, of, of all the devices that, that are, are going to come out in the future? What's interesting now is that um, even just about a year and a half ago when a client used to come to us, we used to decide pretty quickly what device the product was going to be on. Is it like, is this iOS? Is this like, is this iOS and watch or is it whatever? Um, I think the right now, I mean, we're already in the future right now. I can, I can give you some hints because we're working on products that are uh, kind of being released over the next few years. You don't even talk about the devices anymore. You're talking about the product and you just ex put it on the device uh, that actually is the, is the right context for the user. And that's another thing about the commoditization, right? We just start with one uh, device or one, uh, let's say we just say, here's like the native iOS version of this product because that's where it's going first. And now other people can figure out how that should look on other devices based on the context. So right now, honestly, almost every product we do is almost on every single device natively on uh, also web. It's also then completely interactable by, uh, with like Alexa, with like Google Home. It's like these, these new devices and these new services become basically platforms for every possible interface to plug into based on the context that it's being used for. So when we're building something now, we can assume that the client might call us a, a couple of uh, months down the line and say, oh, hey, Audi want to integrate this into their car. And we're like, yeah, okay, that's basically what happens to a lot of products that get successful. Uh, call these guys, they'll do it for you. So I think at this point, we're just imagine like the, the product or the, the design you make and the problem you solve becomes like an entity that has hundreds potentially of different interfaces. So really, it's crazy how fast that changed. Like last year, like I said, or, or crazy enough, like four years ago, clients used to even say, well, this, this should be on iPhone and iPad, like even specific things like that. We even had to make different like screens for everything. It's, it's a totally different story now, especially when you're kind of uh, looking at just product design in general. We're not specifically talking about devices anymore. So basically what you're saying is the future of uh, design it, when it comes to, uh, you know, any type of online or, or connected product is it's going to be completely formless and adaptable to whatever container. It's going to be like water. It's basically like taking the shape of, of whatever it's being transmitted to. That's a nicer way of saying it than I said it. I think that's exactly it, to be honest. It's uh, almost every product we've worked on in the last year is uh, multi-channel in every possible way, even down to you might even be using the product through a social media channel. You're not necessarily even using the product directly. So it's, it's exactly like you said, the products are becoming formless, um, which is why I'm less and less uh, interested in, the, or, or less and less worried about templates and things like that, because it really is about how do you actually orchestrate a product like this and how do you solve the real problems rather than how do you add the menu in there or whatever. <laughs> Should it be a hamburger menu? 
Exactly. Well, this has been, uh, I was highly anticipating this interview before we went into it. And now, and now that we're at its conclusion, uh, I've totally felt that this was uh, very illuminating. And uh, Jonathan, how can we find you if people want to learn more about you or AJ and Smart? The best place to um, do any of the above would be to go to, I think, actually, what the best... Uh, the best Instagram page in the world. No, <laughs> no, AJ Smart Design on Instagram. Uh, we do basically daily vlogs showing exactly how we're working step by step in the process. Every week we show a new client and how we're actually designing the products for them. Um, also, that's the best place for people to just ask us questions directly. So AJ Smart Design on Instagram. And if you want to ask me directly a question, um, I'm at J Ice Cream. <laughs> On Twitter, so I'm always um, always answering questions there for whatever whatever you have. But yeah, I mean, one of those two places is the best. Excellent. And co-host Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Oh, it's simple, folks. I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. That's at Jonathan Denwood. Easy to search. I think there is only one Jonathan Denwood on Twitter. I have to check that. Or you can email me. Um, I do reply. To um, obviously, if it comes from a person, I do reply to it. It's just the just what you should do, really, but not straight away. Give me a couple of days. Cool, cool, cool. And you can find me at my website, lockdowndesign.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. For the WP Tonic crew, we're saying peace out and get your dose. Bye. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.